I'd like to begin with our key passage here, which is John chapter 20 and verse 30. I'd like you to stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 20 and verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful story of your death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, help me now to open up this story and to share it to observe some of the things that might be overlooked and in every way to rejoice in the fact that this passage of John's gospel is the pinnacle. It's the high point of demonstrating that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God and that believing in him we have eternal life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. My plan today in this passage is to take a walk through an extended passage of Scripture. John chapter 19 and verse 30, and all the way through John chapter 20 and verse, actually verse 31. And in doing so, to point out how each person in this passage that we meet begins in a state of doubt. And as they interact and observe what is happening, both in the way that Christ died and the way that the story unfolds, as John intends, it brings us from a place of doubt to a place of faith. And you see that more and more as we go along, and it becomes more and more intense and more amazing as you go through the story. But everyone from the Roman soldiers to Joseph of Arimathea to Nicodemus to Mary Magdalene to Peter and John together to the ten disciples initially, and then to Thomas, the eleventh disciple, and then finally, as Jesus makes clear to Thomas, through these witnesses, these eyewitnesses, all of us, through the witness of what happened, their witness to what actually happened. And so we begin with the fact that Jesus died a criminal's death. He has been treated, he is being treated as a criminal. He has been beaten. He has been forced to carry his own cross, which is the cross bar that goes across the top of the tall post, fits into place to create what we understand to be the cross, When we think of Jesus bearing the cross, he's actually bearing that crossbar, the part that goes horizontally. He's nailed to that cross. And he is in a position in which he will hang there upon that cross until he either bleeds out through his wounds or he suffocates as he is unable to breathe because of the weight that's being pressed upon his lungs. And so there is this constant battle upon the cross of pushing up on the nails that are going through his feet in order for him to take a breath and then to drop back down and be hanging by the nails that are piercing his wrists. This is an agonizing death. It's intended to be an agonizing death. It is intended to be a warning to others who might follow in this criminal activity not to do so 
lest you also find yourself hanging upon a cross and battling to breathe until you finally bleed out and die. It's a horrible thing. We live in a society in which death is often behind the scenes. It's, it's behind swinging white doors in hospitals. It doesn't often happen where the children, let alone other family members, are there. It's often medicated to the point where there's very little interaction with the one who's parting. We have, we have sanitized death. But the death of Jesus Christ was not sanitized. And the recording of how it happened has not been sanitized by the apostles. They want us to see it for what it truly is. That death is what we deserve. He is dying in our place. Not for his own sins, but for our sins. He is suffering. He is in pain. He is dying. And the greatest pain of all was that moment when the father turns his face away and cannot look upon this one who has become sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And so in John chapter 19 in verse 30 we read, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, this is a a kind of an insulting way of easing some of the pain by, by drinking some of this sour wine, Jesus said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus could have given up his spirit at any point. Think about that. He's in such control of this death process that he could have simply checked out early. But he stayed alive upon that cross to bear the full weight of our sin and the, and the pain and the suffering that we deserve. And then, after taking this sour wine, he said, it is finished. He's accomplished what he came for. And he gave up his spirit. And now he's dead. And John tells us in verse 31, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, which would be the next day. This is all happening on Friday. For that Sabbath was a high day. Now, a high day in the Jewish calendar is a Sabbath that occurs during the Passover celebration, which was a week-long celebration. And so we find the, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, uh, unwilling to go into Pilate's uh, quarters or his, his uh, offices there, lest they become defiled and ceremonially unclean and unable to participate in the remaining feasts and other celebration that would take place during the week of the Passover. And so Jesus and his disciples, they have celebrated the Passover on Thursday night. On Friday, Jesus is arrested in the morning. He is tried in the afternoon. And he is crucified in the late afternoon. And the sky is darkened. And the earthquakes occur. And Jesus gives up his spirit. And so because it was the day of preparation for the high Sabbath, they did not want to leave the bodies hanging upon that cross. And there were three of them, remember. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, it is possible that the Jews, the Jewish leaders, knew that there was this prophecy that his legs would not be broken. 
And so by asking, I mean, they're, they're getting involved here. They're asking that the legs of these three criminals would be broken. And this was done in order to speed the criminal's death because he would then be unable to push up upon that nail through his ankles and he would suffocate and die very quickly. So take note of all the details in this passage. In John chapter 19 and verse 32, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Jesus said, It is finished. And his spirit left his body. And now he is hanging there upon the cross and he is obviously dead. But in order to make sure that he's dead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now there are different ideas about the significance of this. But with the uh, crucifixion process, fluid begins to form around the heart and the lungs begins to collect there. And so when this spear enters Jesus' side, you will have blood and you will have that fluid that is collected around the lungs and the heart. And so this is a physically accurate description of what happens when a man is crucified. And he who has seen and has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Now, what's going on? Why is John getting so excited here? Because now I want you to know what I'm saying is true. I was there. I saw this. You can trust this. You can believe this. What's the big deal? Why all these gruesome details? It's because these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. And we read in John 19, 36, For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. The spear... The unbroken legs. God validated the sacrifice of his son by telling us all these details of his death before they ever happen. Now remember, these things are written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God. He's the one. Now the soldiers move from a point of doubt to a place of faith. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50 we read, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. How does that work? That's because God is the one tearing the veil. And the earth quaked. And the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, they were dead, they were raised now. And the coming out of the graves after his resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So here are these, these saints of the Old Testament coming out of their graves, looking around and realizing, hey, we're in Jerusalem, let's take a look at what they've done with the place. And so they, they start walking through the city. Can you imagine what that must have been like? So when the centurion, not just the centurion, notice, and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake. They're standing there at the foot of the cross. They're guarding Jesus and they see these things. They see the earthquake and they see the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, this, truly this, was the Son of God. 
And so these soldiers are moving. These are the very soldiers that had beaten him. The very soldiers that had walked with him as he bore the cross to Calvary, to Mount Golgotha. They're moving from a place of doubt to a place of faith. It wouldn't be surprising if many of these Roman soldiers came to Christ a while later during the day of Pentecost and beyond as the gospel is going forth to the community. These soldiers realized that Jesus was no ordinary man. And then we find a wealthy secret disciple. I like to think that there are wealthy secret disciples in America today. You know, there are people out there behind the scenes, you know, they're not waving a flag, but they're believers and they're doing what they can, you know. I wish they'd be a little bit more courageous, right, come out. But there are some out there that are doing good things behind the scenes. But here we have in John 19.38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, (laughs) secretly, for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. Now what are we going to do with this? You know, you have to admire the man for realizing that if he doesn't take the body of Jesus, the body may be abused in some way. It may, something horrible might be done. And so he goes, and he is a wealthy man, and Pilate, of course, is wanting to uh, get along with the Jews. He has to manage these people. He has to govern these people. And so when this very wealthy Jewish man comes to Pilate and asks for the body, Pilate says, okay, go ahead, take it. Now in Isaiah 53 in verse 9, we read, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so Joseph of Arimathea was also a fulfillment of prophecy. He was what we could call a brave coward. I don't think we can imitate that. We shouldn't imitate that. But it is understandable in the context of the kind of persecution that the Jews were administering to those who believed in Christ. Then we come to a generous secret believer. Excuse me. And this is our good friend Nicodemus. And then Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, remember in John 3, chapter 3, John 3, 16, Nicodemus. He also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. That's a lot of spice. I don't know whether that was common to have that much, but it was a generous contribution to the burial of Christ. And they took the body of Jesus. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are working together now to take the body of Jesus down from the cross. And they bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where, they, where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so they laid Jesus, because of the Jews' preparation day, uh, they laid Jesus there in that tomb, and it was nearby where Christ was crucified. So we could call Nicodemus a generous coward, okay? We have a brave coward and a generous coward. These are men who were disciples of Christ, but from a distance. You know, they didn't want to identify with him publicly for fear of the Jews. They would lose their status in society if they announced that they were actual followers of Christ and believed that he was the Messiah. So when did all this happen? How does this all flow? 
First of all, we have Thursday, which is Passover proper. That's the Passover feast. And this is when the lamb is killed. And this is when Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover meal in the upper room. This is when Judas Iscariot uh, leaves and goes and betrays Jesus to the Jewish leaders. This is the time when Jesus uh, washed the disciples' feet. And this is when he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is the Lord's Supper, right? Then we have Friday, which is the day of preparation, the high day. Jesus is tried and executed, although he's not convicted in the normal sense. He's turned over to the Romans to be crucified. The Jews continue. See, there are all kinds of legal requirements that were skipped in this whole process. This, was, this is what you would call a kangaroo court, you know, where all the normal rules are disregarded because they're wanting to get this over with as quickly as possible. And so the Jews continue their Passover celebrations with the... There we go. There's one of those words I can't pronounce. Chagiga. Chagiga. Offerings made during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then we have Saturday, the High Sabbath. No work is allowed to be done. Jesus is in the tomb during this Saturday High Sabbath. And then Sunday... Sunday morning, early, Jesus is raised from the dead. So that's the sequence of events that we're looking at through this passage. And so now we come to a doubtful believer. And that is Mary Magdalene. And remember, the disciples are all in a state of deep sadness and discouragement and disappointment. They're not coming to the grave to be there for the resurrection. They're coming to take care of the body, to to honor Christ's body. They're putting flowers on the grave, in a sense. They're not going there expecting anything other than a tomb. But on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, early in the morning, while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, Then she ran. She didn't even look inside the tomb. She just ran in this passage and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. John does not refer to himself by name in his gospel. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't think that he means that he's the only one that Jesus loved. He's just amazed at the fact that Jesus loves him too. Okay. And so it's like, what's, what is, what's the thing that you're most proud of, that you're most excited about? You know, when Theodore Roosevelt was alive, even though he had been president of the United States, he liked to be referred to as the colonel. Because he was a military guy. He liked the idea. He was a colonel in the army. And so we have this uh, kind of in John as well, where he says, you want to know how I see myself? I see myself as a disciple that Jesus loved. That's my moniker. That's what I want to have on my, on my little badge. Who are you? I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I want you all to know right now, you can wear that same badge. You are the disciple that Jesus loved. That's your greatest privilege in all of life. You are the disciple whom Jesus loves. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. And so we see in this that the other disciple, that is John, whom Jesus loved, and he said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary Magdalene assumes that someone has taken the dead body of Jesus away for some reason. It is not yet entering her mind the possibility that there could be any other explanation. And so now we have a tag team investigation between, with uh, John and Peter. 
And it's funny in some ways. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple, John happens to mention, the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Ha! John thinks, I'm faster than Peter. And he, John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. So John is faster in running, but slower in entering. So there's some caution, there's some confusion here. And so we continue to read. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. So Peter just blows past John as he's standing there looking in, and Peter just goes right into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, just want you to remember that, went in also, and he saw, and he believed. John is moved from doubt to faith. For as they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead, then the disciples went away again to their own homes. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. But John is believing. John is believing. Something's happened here. This is not a body snatching thing. This is not somebody stealing from a grave. Something more is going on. John is having the light begin to dawn in his own heart. Peter is slower in running, but he's faster in entering. John is faster in believing. You see what's going on? It's like these two guys jockeying. Now, I want to stop and talk about the Shroud of Turin. Some of you have heard of this. Some of you maybe haven't. But there is a, a relic called the Shroud of Turin. I'm not going to get into all of it, but this is what it looks like. There's been a lot of scientific analysis of this relic. And I watched a documentary on this subject. And there is scientific evidence mounting that it may be authentic. Uh, There is a radiation-engraved image on this shroud, as though the body passed through the cloth rather than taking it off. Uh, there are multiple bleeding wounds left, leaving their mark upon the cloth. And, the, and it is actual blood. This, there, there's scientific techniques that have been developed in just recent years. They're so compelling that several of the scientists have become Christians uh, because of this. They have converted from atheism to Christianity because they find in this cloth such a strong evidence that it is the real deal. They've even discovered that the reason that the cloth, the blood on the cloth is red rather than black has to do with the way that blood uh, is affected by high levels of stress. It creates an entirely different kind of, of blood and so that blood, its evidence shows that it does not turn black. It, it stays red. So, does this matter to us? It's not the basis of our faith. It is an interesting, uh, in-your-face kind of thing for the secular world to have to grapple with. And I think it's reasonable to say that they would not just discard these linen cloths. Uh, They were precious to the disciples in the early church. And so the attempt to preserve things that related to the death of Christ would be very highly motivated. And so we we need to be careful not to laugh at the idea that, you know, there are 40,000 pounds of the splinters from the true cross. You know, that's kind of a running joke because there's so much of it. It can't possibly be all parts of the true cross. 
But I do believe that if anybody did have a splinter from the true cross, they would be taking pretty good care of it. Okay, so we don't know and we don't need to know entirely, but it is interesting. So if you ever run across this, you know, in your, in your browsing the internet, there does seem to be mounting evidence that it's authentic. And that has huge implications for a world that has been denying that Jesus even existed. Okay, so, now we find something I think is very interesting, and this takes on some psychological kind of elements to it. How do you deal with something so outstanding as the resurrection when the human mind can't open up to this idea without as I would say as a young, freaking out, okay, without going into shock, without just having a mental collapse. I think that's what we need to see happening here as the angels and Jesus himself are just kind of slowly introducing the idea that Jesus is risen from the dead. It's like you can't handle it all in one big, big burst. And so watch what happens. But Mary stood outside the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And so she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Now you can imagine these angels, you know, they're going, okay, let's be careful here. (laughs) She's human. (laughs) She can only take so much, so fast. So let's just kind of ease in on this. Why are you weeping? Where's his body? You know, they're just so gentle, so patient. They're avoiding pushing her into shock. The truth is just too bright to look at at this point. And so in John 20, verse 14, and when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Now, this is where, you know, we've got different ideas about what was going on. But you don't know how much of what you see and observe is affected by what you expect to see. You know, So you can tend to see things that are not really there because you expect to. And you cannot see things that are there because you don't expect them to be there. And so now here we are, she's standing here talking to Jesus and she doesn't recognize him. And I don't think it's a matter of him being so glorious and glowing in the dark. I think he's Jesus, the man, standing there in front of her And she does not expect Jesus to be standing there. And so she kind of, you know, maybe her eyes are glancing here and there, but she's saying, well, Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell him, tell tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, in a way that only his voice could say to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him, Rabboni. Her her eyes are open now. She can see him. She can see it's him. We need to take from this the idea that putting your faith in Jesus, believing in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, is a pretty immense challenge. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to break through the darkness in our hearts and reveal the face of Jesus, the face of God in Jesus Christ. We, Our human minds are more affected by what we expect than they are by what we actually observe. 
And so when someone comes to faith in Christ, it's a miracle. It's a miracle from God. The new birth is a miracle from God. And God is so much more gentler than we often are. He is so much more patient than we often are in presenting the gospel to our friends and family members. We need to speak to them with the idea that they've just that they're waking up from a coma <laughs> and, and that they have no idea where they are and what has happened to them. And we're saying, Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. He is God the Son. He has paid for all your sins. He's not mad at you. He, will, he loves you so much. And he wants you to be his child and in his family. Now calm down. You're going to be okay. <laughs> now repent and believe this good news. That's what we're up against. And so, our spiritual eyes have to be accustomed, become accustomed to the brightness of the truth of the resurrection. Now, Mary at this point is, is hanging on a bit too long. Okay. She's now convinced that Jesus is alive, that he's standing there in front of her, and she is now clinging to him. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and he is now your Father, and to my God, and he is your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now, what is this thing about the clinging? Okay, I would imagine that her reaction when Jesus said, Mary, and she says, teacher, she reached out and just hugged him. <laughs> she just hugged him and she's holding him. Now, I don't mean to make this sound trite, but I think Jesus is saying, hey, I got places to go and people to see, <laughs> and I can't stand here and hug you uh, any longer. So, Mary, I love you. Go tell my disciples what's happened. And, and so she goes, and she tells them, and they don't believe her. They think, okay, that's what women do, Right? Now, the point is here, Jesus is in the process of satisfying the demands of God's righteousness. It may be that he is going to present his blood before the altar of God in heaven. That he's going to, to do things that we don't entirely understand how it all works, but he is going to ascend to the Father. Does is he referring to the ascension that will take place 40 days from now? Or is he referring to something going on between him and the... Because he's appearing and disappearing, appearing and disappearing. Where is he going when he disappears? I don't think he's walking in the woods. Okay? I think he's going back and forth into the presence of the Father. He's satisfying all the righteous demands of, of, God's, of the sacrifice that settles the score for all the sins of the whole world and all who believe in him will be redeemed by this sacrifice. And so there's something going on here like a rolling bottle of water. Now there's something going on here that Jesus is, is saying, I, I have not yet ascended to my Father. And I need to do that. And you have to let go now for a moment, Mary, and let me go. So in a sense, Mary Magdalene is experiencing the resurrection of her own faith from the grave of doubting Christ's resurrection. She then walked slowly out of the darkness of her fears, her doubts, her lack of expectation into the light of faith in the truth that Jesus Christ is, in fact, risen from the dead. And I think that is something of a picture of what happens to us when we come to faith in Christ. 
We don't just, it's not like we snap our fingers. God transfers us out of the kingdoms of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. Now the ten disciples, they are now hiding from the religious authorities, fearful that they are going to be apprehended. And so in John 20, verse 19, then the same day at evening now, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, notice, for fear of the Jews, the doors are shut. Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, peace be with you. The doors were shut. And Jesus is now standing in the middle of the room with them. Now we have to stop and think about how this all plays out in the perception of the disciples. He didn't knock. Okay? He didn't open the door. And yet here he is. <laughs> now, maybe it's just me. But I see in these descriptions of Christ's resurrection a string of revelations of what it means that Jesus now is raised from the dead. He now has what we call a glorified body. And a glorified body is not bound by the same laws of physics that a non-glorified body is bound to. I can't walk through walls. We don't even know that Jesus walked through a wall. He just appeared. It's kind of like beam me down Scotty kind of a thing. It's just all of a sudden he's standing there in the room. And we need to let this have its effect upon our thinking. We are all going to have glorified bodies. And I think when, when you have kids who think, I don't want to go to heaven, it's going to be boring. You know, all you're going to do is sit around on a cloud and play a harp, and everybody keeps saying, holy, holy, holy. When are they going to stop that and go do something fun? Okay, well, how about this, kids? How would you like to have, how many senses do you have right now? Five senses. And with those five senses, you can access the real world. You can feel it, you can see it, you can taste it, you can hear it, right? And what's the other one? You can smell it. What if you had 5,000 senses? What if you could access the real world through 5,000 different ways we can't even imagine? Or what if the five senses you have are suddenly unlimited? And instead of just being able to see this narrow uh, slice of, of visible light, you can see the entire spectrum of light. What would the world look like if you could see everything, including ultraviolet and, uh, what's the other end of it? Uh, ultraviolet and infrared. You know, these are light waves we can't perceive with our eyes, but what if you could? What would the world look like if you had full color? <laughs> what if you had eyes that could look at something like a microscope and see subatomic particles when you focus on that. Or you can look up into the sky and have your own Hubble telescope. And you can see the universe. And everything in between. No limitations to your sight. What if you could hear all the frequencies? All the frequencies, and not just this narrow frequency. What will music sound like? Assuming somebody's really good on their instrument. <laughs> and you're listening. You see, the, a glorified body is not just your body raised up as it is. It's a new body that is equipped to enjoy all of reality with no limitations. You're not going to be bored. You're not going to be bored. I can imagine us enjoying the arduous effort of climbing some massive mountain somewhere. We get to the top and we realize, oh, we're going to be late for worship. And then, boop, we are back. <laughs> we don't have to climb down any mountains. We just can climb up and then beam ourselves back to the place where we want to 
join in the worship. That's what I'm talking about. And so, Jesus appears in the room. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He's the guy who is... So, with this glorified body, he's not just visibly the same person. You can recognize his face. God has chosen to leave these wounds visible in this glorified body of Jesus. And that's not for his sake. That's for our sake. We're going to be able to see Jesus and recognize him, not just because we we see his face and say, yeah, that's Jesus, but because he's the one with the pierced wrists and the spear in his side and the pierced ankles. He is Jesus, the same Jesus that died, is now risen from the dead, and he has a glorified body that is unlimited by physics. And then the disciples were glad. It says they were glad when they saw the Lord. So the disciples believed that Jesus, I need that bottle now. The disciples were glad when they saw Jesus, but it was it was seeing him that allowed them to believe that he was risen from the dead. And that's an important point. It's going to come up again in a moment. Now, Jesus does something now that's interesting, important. He said to the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just say, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. Notice, so Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. I think they're still kind of trembling, you know, with excitement. So he said, calm down. Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says something else. Very important. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So we're dealing with an apostolic authority now to both grant and withdraw or withhold forgiveness. That's a pretty important thing. The apostles received the Holy Spirit and with him they received the commission to represent God in forgiving sins and retaining sins as needed. Now it's not as though it's their decision. It's the Holy Spirit within them that is making the decision and they're simply announcing and representing what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now we see this authority exercised in the first book, uh, in, in the first time in the book of Acts. Do you remember when Peter pronounces judgment on Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? They had lied to whom? They had lied to the Holy Spirit in withholding some of the funds and acting, making it appear as though they were giving the entire amount to the church when they were not. And so Peter, being guided by the Holy Spirit, says, when you had that land, it was yours to keep or sell. And after you sold it, the money was yours to do with whatever you choose. This was not communalism. This was just radical generosity being practiced by those who loved God and loved one another and wanted to do whatever good they could for one another. So we're not dealing with communalism or communism. We're dealing with radical generosity, which we need to be that way today. The kind of radical generosity that says, hey, if you have a need... I am willing to do whatever I can in my power to help meet that need. But God also has other members of the body that can help meet that need. So it doesn't all fall on any one person's shoulders. That's called the body life of the church. We see this again when Peter rebukes Simon the sorcerer. Now who did Simon the sorcerer try to buy? Do you remember? 
He saw that when the apostles laid their hands on people, the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And he said, hey, I'll give you some money. You give me this power so that the Holy Spirit will come upon anybody I pray for. I'll have a new gig. I won't have to be a sorcerer anymore. I'll be a great man of power. And I might even get on television and have my own uh, uh, televangelism thing going, you know, and and travel the world and, and, and teach everybody. And Peter says, your money perish with you. The Holy Spirit is not for sale. So we see this authority that the apostles have is not like they're going to say, okay, I'm not going to forgive you unless you give this amount of money to the church. That's not the way it works. It's the Holy Spirit who knows the heart of the individual, who tells the the one who's praying. And I believe the same thing happens today in the lives of the leaders of the church, that we have this responsibility not to to indulge in this kind of a easy, you know, believism kind of cheap grace kind of thing where somebody's living in sin and yet we're going to act as though they're a, a fellow believer. We've got authority to say, no, you've you got to change your ways. You're not going to be able to corrupt the church. So in Acts 8.20, we see the same thing happening. So we see this authority again when Paul renders judgment toward the man who is living in sin in the church in Corinth. Remember the guy, he's having a relationship with his mother-in-law. And Paul says, hey, I've already made the decision. This guy needs to be disciplined. And then later when the guy's restored, he says, forgive the guy and, and don't, don't pile on to the point that he becomes overwhelmed with, uh, with uh, sadness and sorrow. Receive him back into the fellowship. He's repented. So I believe this is, does not have to be some, oh, I need to go join the Catholic Church kind of thing. You don't. God has given his Holy Spirit to the church. He's given elders and deacons to the church. And he intends for us to be able to move in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the illumination of the Holy Spirit and to not just be conned by people who are not truly believers, who are just wanting to use the church to get something that they want. So what happened on the day of Pentecost was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. And we now walk in the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We love one another in the Spirit, and we should allow that to affect the way we are perceiving things. Now, Thomas. Most people refer to him as Doubting Thomas. Okay? He's the 11th disciple. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared the first time. And so we see now Thomas, called the twin, uh, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I want to ask you, is Thomas wrong to feel this way? Would it be wise or right to believe something without compelling evidence? At this point in the process of our salvation, Thomas is, asked, is taking a position that only makes sense in the face of what has happened. Gullibility is not a virtue. It's not. Don't confuse faith with being gullible. In fact, did you know that the word gullible is not even in the dictionary? Go and look. And if you do... You're gullible. You see, you shouldn't just believe something because somebody says it, especially with the internet. You need to ask for some kind of compelling, credible evidence. And so it would be foolish to believe Jesus is risen from the dead without the testimony of credible eyewitnesses. And Thomas is saying, I am not going to just get taken in by a group delusion here. I need to see for myself. And so Thomas is about to become one of those credible eyewitnesses.
Now, this is really cool when you think about it. He's saying, I am not going to believe unless I see with my own eyes and put my fingers in the nail holes and put my finger in his side. I am not going to believe. And then Jesus shows up. (laughs) And Jesus is so kind and patient. And after eight days, that would be the the next Lord's Day, right? When did Jesus die? On a Sunday. This is all happening on a Sunday. And so eight days later, they're gathering on another Sunday. I think that's evidence that Sunday is the Lord's day. And so the disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut again. He's just going to show up in the middle of the room. And he stood in their midst and said, peace be to you, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger. Now what Jesus is revealing is he heard this conversation last week. He could have shown up right there at that moment. But God in his wisdom chooses to wait until next Sunday. What does that do? That reveals that Sunday is the Lord's day. You want to meet with Jesus? We'll see you next Sunday. Right? The point is, is that Sunday is a special day. And he says to him, reach your finger here. I, I, heard you, I heard what you said, so go ahead. Put your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand in here. Here, put your hand in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered, and he goes beyond what the other apostles said. He drops to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. That's blasphemy if Jesus is not God. And so we have here the clear evidence that the disciples believed from the beginning that Jesus is God. He's not just the Son of God, the firstborn of all creation. He's God. He's not a Jehovah's Witness. He's God. He's not an Arian. He's God. Okay? And this is important because you know, several hundred years later, they have these church councils where they resolve all of this and say, based on passages like this, Jesus is divine. He's not just a man. He's not just the best of all men. He's God the Son. And so we have doctrine revealed in this passage. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so now Jesus is referring here to those of us who will have to believe in him without actually seeing him risen from the dead. This story is filled with implications that now apply to our lives. Through John and men like Thomas, God has provided the means by which we can make the journey from doubt to faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in John 20, verse 30 through 31, as we began, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is the based upon historical fact that that God raised Jesus from the dead. Typos ignored. This is the gospel by which you are saved. 1 Corinthians 15.1 Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel is the good news concerning the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this truth changes everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask your blessing upon your word as you bless it to our hearts. May we go home this day and walk in the light of the truth that Jesus rose from the dead and that we will one day rise from the dead and it will be glorious. And we look forward to that. And it is our hope. We ask it in Jesus' name.